This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Kevin Kilby, or Tex, as his friends like to call him. Kevin and his family run Inglewood, a conglomeration of five properties nestled within what's regarded as the Golden Triangle, north of Gilgandra. The Kilbys run a true mixed farming enterprise with a cereal, legume, canola rotation alongside permanent pastures for beef cattle and fat lamb production. Kevin is a salt of the earth sort of bloke who's been around for a while and lives by the mantra of if you don't do it properly, don't do it at all. In this episode, Kevin lets us in on his keys to success, including being open to new ideas and approaches, supporting locally based research and conserving soil moisture at all costs. It's this approach that has been instrumental in helping him build his business resilience and manage through the variability of our seasons. You'll also hear how Kevin is passionate about the future of farming, his family and getting the transition right through facilitated succession planning and open conversations. And as you'll hear Kevin explain, this subtle shift has led to the introduction of composite breed sheep into the business, which has recently opened his eyes to opportunities he didn't think possible. Local Land Services Cropping Officer Tim Bartamote sat down with Kevin for a cuppa and this yarn at the homestead on Inglewood. So Tex, tell us a little bit about what you do here at Inglewood. Inglewood is a, is a combination of five properties, including one small one, but it's a mixed farm. We have grain, we have a mixture of grain, we have cereals, we have legumes and we have canola as a mixture and we have sheep and we have cattle. We have beef cattle in fat lamb and we produce prime lambs. Wow, so you've got a pretty busy operation going on. What's your reasoning behind getting that solid rotation there? It's been very traditional, but, but I feel that a mixed farm gives you more options, you know, like you can have a complete failure in a wheat through a frost or a disease, you know, or a bad rain event, and you've always got stock as a backup. And at the moment, livestock are probably a better proposition than wheat, even at the price of wheat the way it is, especially with the cost of imports coming up next year, fertiliser and chemical. Yeah, for sure. And so you see it as mitigating risk, Mitigating risk and also I think it makes the farm much more sustainable in the future. Yep, but we grow loosen as a part of the rotations. We also grow legumes and we also got subtropical grasses. It's a permanent pasture. What subtropicals or tropical pastures are you? Premier Digit, Cat and Panic and Bembatsi Panic. That's the mixture. I've heard you mention before how you kind of match land capability with the enterprise. Yeah, and, and we've planted them in country that's not good farming country. It's either shallowy clay country, it's either too wet or too dry, and also we have some country on Chippendale, a lot of water goes through, and we've just planted that down to legumes, uh, you know, cerradella, bicerella, clover, and grasses, yeah, subtropical grasses, so that'll be there permanent. And it'll be quite terrific now, it's got cerradella and bicerella, clover, it's probably foot high on it, you know, it's terrific, yeah. Do you have any recommendations for anyone on how to get a good 
pasture like that up and going? We've found out following from people like Bob Freeband to grow oats in for a few years to control some weeds, which are very hard. Umbrella grass and button grass are pretty persistent, like they're pretty hard to control, but if you get a start on them, the subtropical grasses will compete with them. I find the hardest part is actually getting some legumes like Cerradilla and Bicerella. So this year we started a bit later, closer to autumn, to try and get the Bicerella and the Cerradilla in a, into the mix straight away, which is also a bit hard because you can get some you know, broadleaf weeds in it, but I think over the years they will settle down. So one question that I definitely asked you when I first met you was, everyone calls you Tex. Why is that? We all know your name's Kevin. Years ago, I was in Sydney for about 18 months, actually. went to university and, and I came home 18 months after I left school and I just like playing football. It's a good way to meet people and I just walked in the dressing shed before training and this bloke, Jim Culkin, his name was, and he said, oh, he's a long, tall Texan and I was called Tex ever since. That's unreal, isn't it? Yeah. That was about May 1972. And I just like, feels like yesterday. He said, he's a long, tall Texan. <laughs> it's unreal, isn't it? Like, and that was from that day. Do you introduce yourself as Tex these days? Oh, sometimes over the phone. They know, they don't know my real name. <laughs> and actually, they had a photo team God, from 1976. That's That was a grand final side. Yeah, I'm Kevin Kilby in that. But yeah. I'm in the middle of the back row. Can you see my name there? For those, obviously, who can't see what I'm looking at, there is a very tall man in the back row of a footy team, and I'm assuming that's you there, Tex. i tell you what, Tim, that was a really – we got beaten 33 to 8 in the grand final, and those two Sydney first graders, there was a New South Wales country player, those other Western Division players, and those one bloke there, he was picked in Australian services side. He was in national service, and his 5'8 was Bobby Fulton. There you go. He was picked. He played the All Blacks. Yeah, that was a very good side. That's how strong that was. Rugby league then it was really the main sport then, but that's how strong rugby league was in the bush then. Well, that's a big claim to fame. You've played against all those players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back onto um one of the things that I I've definitely learned from you is your idea of prepping for the good year, and you're known around this area as a pretty good spot. I would say, but... They call it the Golden Triangle. That's it, exactly. <laughs> Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the other thing is that you've probably got a bit of a reputation as a kitchen sink kind of farmer, like if the crop needs it, you'll give it kind of thing. How do you justify the cost of those inputs, such as fertiliser, chemistry, seed? We talked before, Tim, but Cole Mullins just said, if you don't do it properly, don't do it at all. And that's really good advice, you know. I'll just never forget the first time I grew canola, and I think it had to be 20p, 20 sulphur, and 20N, which 20-odd years ago was a pretty big input. And he said, he said, Texas said, if you don't put that on, just don't grow it. But you do respond to seasons. Like, we're in a pretty good climate here, and most years we've got subsoil moisture. You know, it's follow-up rain, which is our reckoning during the season. If the follow-up rain isn't coming, like, we just don't put extra urea on and things like that. But this year we put everything on we could because there's that much potential there. With the season, Tim, yeah. But other years, like 17, 18 and 19, like you wouldn't go putting huge inputs on, you know, because they were pretty tough years. And actually, 19 was a really hard year because we were lucky one way because we had winter pasture, but we had nearly 70 mil in March. No, we had 80 mil in March and we had 40 mil here in May and we put a fair bit on, to, you know, to sow it and we never got a rain after it. That's 25 mil over six months. And, you know, we just needed one rain to probably get a 
two and a half, three ton crop probably and just never got it. And that's one of the few years that's ever happened in my lifetime here. Because usually a, a tough year is pretty tough right from the state. You don't get rain like that. But then again, we be able to keep all our livestock through doing that. You know what I mean? Like we had oats and everything to put sheep on and the lambs were a good price and cattle was a good price. Yeah, and we'd be able to keep all our livestock with that rain. So it wasn't a total disaster. So in those we can see now were bad years. How do you justify the upfront costs, like going in with a, a really solid pre-emergent to tackle a weed issue or putting that fertiliser in with the seed? How do you think about that, not knowing what's going to happen? Farmers are gamblers, Tim, and that's just part of it, Tim. You know, you, as I said, you, if you don't do it properly, you don't do it at all. So sometimes it's worth having a crack? Yeah, it's worth having a crack, yeah. you just got to do it properly because there's always a really good year around the corner. Because I guess on the other side, if... It does turn into a good year and you haven't got that under underneath it ready to go then that's right Tim yeah you just got to do it properly you know like you got to fallow properly that's probably one of the main things you must conserve moisture and that's what Bob Freeburn, Cole Mullins, Jamie Taylor you've got to have your country under control your weeds under control right through you know in the fallow period how do you monitor soil moisture how do you know where you're sitting at during the summer and oh the we just got a soil probe really yeah That'll tell you a fair bit. If it goes straight down, there's plenty of moisture there. And it, and it goes straight down if it's wet. You can hear it suck coming out, you know. Yeah. yeah. And really, Tim, we're in a pretty lucky area. Most times in this red soil, it's really easy to fill up. And uh, most times we've got a full profile here. Is it mostly red country or you've got a bit of a… Oh, it's, it's some light country, red country and, you know, small percentage of black country. Not much. What would be your prime farming country versus your oh, past? Oh, the red country, good courage on red country years. Although some lighter country in Inglewood is really good in dry years and it's even good in wet years. You drove sort of past it coming down now. You know, it grew five tonnes of the hectare last year and the barley's probably not much different this year. It's all pretty productive country, Tim, what we own. We're pretty lucky, yeah. I know there's quite a number of producers that would say that black country is the best country. What would you say to say why red Oh, country? it's a very good country, Tim. It's very good country if it's farmed the right way and you get the right year. Although even people who own black country, they like a mixture too, Tim, I think. you know They probably like light country with it in tougher years. But black country, like that country can amble, you probably can't beat it. you know When they crack it, they crack it. Yeah, same as wild. And when it comes to monitoring your soil nutrition and that sort of thing, are you a big believer in soil testing? Yeah, we are. Yep, yep. We always see what's going on. Really, really the only thing... I'd, changes is the nitrogen in it you know really here the if you do a soil test the ph is pretty constant and um and the p is pretty constant too we we make sure we always use good levels of phosphorus and we do lime you know yeah most of our country's been limed probably some people might lime a bit more but it's a bit of a cost thing too it's just You've got to know what nitrogen's there. Can you give me an example where you've made a decision based off soil testing before? We were lined some country and it's a bit low. Like we've got some country here. Some of that country coming down to our house was in the, you know, 4.4 and we've lined that country. But probably one paddock's had two lots of lime on it and it's about 5.5 now. That's part of it. And, you know, if you grow a couple of big crops in the paddock, well, it's good to know what the soil nitrogen is too. Yeah going to next year it's good to know to see how much legumes put in the soil too like they can take a bit out if you grow a bit on them which will probably will happen this year because you know they're all good crops of legumes there's, there's been no frost damage you know they're probably two and a half three tons of the hectare a lot of the legume crops yeah which is pretty which doesn't happen all the time no not at all tex i know that locally uh, people are probably fairly aware but 
just for our listeners more broadly, you're a big believer in local research and advocating that. Even on your own farm, there's a, a number of different trials every single year and we're quite fortunate to hold a field day uh, generally in September. But why are you such a large supporter of local research? Oh, sort of, Cole Mullis got us into it in the early 1990s and he originally had some nitrogen tests and then some phosphorus tests and you can just see, you know, it's great to see and probably more people should go to field days, you know what I mean? And I went on a grass trip and he went to Condable and Neil Fattel, his research scientist there, he's passed away, he was a great bloke and he had a, he had a sore phosphorus test and they watered the country before they sowed it and there wasn't, it was a drought year 2008 down there, it was a pretty dry year and they, they had subsoil moisture at the search station and I don't think it was watered after, I'm sure of it and every phosphorus application increased, the crop was better. And that was in a dry year and I, geez, it happened my eyes. And that's why, yeah, that's local research. It's not far away condo and the soil there is pretty similar to what it is here. And that just opened my eyes. thought, you just, this country is deficient in phosphorus and if you, you want to get the most out of it, Tim, and maintain your productivity, you've just got to use it, you know. And that's, that's, that's one glaring example. But Cole had a lot of, you know, P and N tests here too and it was all the same result. And plus... You can see in the trials that like we follow them. Probably this is one year because of the COVID. There's no there's no plan there. You've got to chase it up. But you can just walk through and see the good varieties. You know, when you walk past the trials in in the wheats, in the barley's, you know, you see which one stands up the best and and just looks the best. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a bit of a problem now too. Like it's been a wet year. And there's been a bit of rust about, you know, like some of these new varieties have broken down virtually straight away, you know, and it's good to go to field days and have research locally to see what's going on, you know, with the varieties. Yeah, because yeah, it can cost you if you have a big striped rust. Epidemic, plague. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like an infection, big striped rust infection, Tim, yeah, that can do a real lot of damage, you know, small grain, loss of yield. So for you, you see research as a way to keep your, you know, your foot in the game or understand what's new, what's going on. You were recently talking about varieties and you're moving out of Gregory. Is that an example of a time when you've done that before, when you've looked at MVT trials? Yeah. Look, like there's been good weeks over the years, you know, like Sunvale's a good wheat and Hard Dog's another good wheat, Sunstate was another good wheat, Diamond Bird's a good wheat. You know, that's going back to the 1990s probably. And we just followed Gregory through it and it was a really good wheat and we've been growing it. Oh, since 2007, and it's just a and, – and it is a good wheat, but it is outclassed and it's made – it just doesn't stand up properly, you know, and it's a bit bulky in the stubble. Yeah, and it's just a shame, you know, it wasn't better, a bit, bit shorter. It, we'd probably grown it for years and years, and it's got absolutely no leaf disease. But we've just been looking for some new varieties to replace Gregory and, and actually grew one this year. I did not say the variety, but – it's broken down to striped rust and, and there's a problem with it. So we just won't – it looks a fantastic wheat because it's short, you know, and it's a good yielder. But no, we probably won't be growing. It needs two sprays. needs two fungicide sprays. Do you normally incorporate a fungicide spray in most of your – Yeah, well, this we, – we haven't done it all the time. But, you know, in the drought years we didn't do it. But this year we did it in every paddock, which is probably a good thing we did, Tim. Because we haven't – there's striped rust there, but it's, it's not in big proportion. It's just in a low-level infection. I had a bit of a look yesterday. So how often would you go out and look at your, your crops? Not very often, Tim. I might once a week go and have a look. Yeah, and I'll, you drive past them. If you drive past the crop, you always have a look to see if there's anything you know shows up. 
if you can see anything, it's pretty easy to see. But I walk in a variety, new variety we got a couple of weeks ago and I said, oh, gee, there's a bit of striped rust there in the lower leaves. And it was done with fungicide. And it was a new variety which we plan to replace another old variety with. And we probably won't be able to grow it, Tim. You know, it's a shame. It's a short wheat and everything else. Sometimes you aren't looking for anything and, and you see it. You know what I mean? Yeah, the old 80K swing by doesn't really work these days, does it? You have to go and have a look for yourself. But you've really got to, you've got to have a look at your crops. And you learn too. You learn about farming if you do, you know, if you do look at your crops. And you've got to monitor them all the time because, you know, there might be weed there one week and the next week you come back there is, you know what I mean? You want to get the most out of them. It's no good spraying them when it's too late, you know, or, or straying, doing striped rust when it's too late. Or sclerotinia in canola when it's too late. You've got to keep an eye on it, yeah. So you're big on being proactive and seeing what's going on and not being caught by surprise, really. It's quite enjoyable, actually. If you inspect your crops, you learn all the time too, Tim. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And you learn every day. You know, we, I learn every day. I'm 68 and I'm still learning every day. What have you learned recently? Well, this is not cropping. It's about sheep. First cross years, I was in the land a couple of weeks ago. They're bringing $500 and I reckon that's madness. But John's dead against paying big money for first cross years and we bought some for $255 and he said why don't we have a go at these composites you know what a composite is Tim it's a self-replacing breed meat breed anyway he heard about this prime lime use and he got it off the internet and I had a read and I said yeah that's all right and so he bought 180 and I went to a field day about 10 years ago and they had prime lime sheet in this place they had 10,000 of them actually it was down at Harden he said yeah we gave them a go but these ewes were born in August and we joined them in March. They're only seven months old and they scanned about 80% and we pulled one lamb and one you had to put one ewe down. She lamb must have died inside her, you know. Anyway, we bought some young first cross ewes and they were a bit woody when we got them. We looked after them and we joined them at nine months, which is pretty young, and they scanned 86% and we pulled one lamb. You know, if I had to join the dorsal with those ewes, they'd be... You know, there'd be prolapses and they'd be lambing trouble and you'd be disturbing the sheep lambing. We had pulled one lamb and those two years died, must have been, had a bit of trouble lambing or something, got an infection, but we didn't pull any others. And that's what I, and I said, well, after that, if you buy young ewes, you should be joining with these prime lime ewes because John said they're an easy care sheep to bloke who bred them. You know, they're easy care sheep. And also the rams, they were only seven months old when they joined them. That's astounding. Like, we're going to keep the ewes from the prime lines and we're going to keep the ewes out of the crossbreds. But that's something you learn every day, you know. Like, we got the sheep from Holbrook, which is a long way away. But that's John C. He's, he was a bit of an innovator too. He wants to give things a go. So, And John actually is real mad keen on growing clovers for, for feed, and he started to do it this year. And arrowleaf clovers two foot high, where he sowed it, in 20-odd acres. And he sowed a paddock of winter phalaris with clover. Yeah. And I've got a photo on my phone there I can show you, Tim. It's, it's like that. Yeah. So John's your son. How have you found like incorporating family and that sort of thing back into the business? And it's pretty easy with John. Like it, there's nothing perfect. Like we don't always agree with things, but John was always keen on the farm. So yeah, it's pretty. I got another son. He was on the farm for twelve months. He's a, he loves. He's a stock and station agent. Yeah, yeah. So, but he just wasn't really keen to be a farmer full time. So you're more about providing opportunity for those in your family that want to be involved, and and it's fairly hard, Tim, for. For a young person to come on the farm too, you know, a young person to own a farm with the price of land these days too, Tim. You know, like it's just overpriced. You know, that's the thing. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem to be going down anytime soon no, either. No, it's like, like house prices in Sydney, Tim. No, it's getting out of hand, yeah. John's got a brother, Paul, and a sister, Penny, and it's this succession pending. We're in a program now. We've got a facilitator and we're doing things now to change over and um, that's hard too, Tim. You know, it's not easy. Yeah. It's definitely a topic that comes up time and time again is succession planning. It's just hard because, as I said, price of land is overblown, you know, and it's and it's hard. You can't share it equally. That is the problem, you know. Like you can't do it. John, John couldn't buy the others out for the price of land or what it is. Just could not. Yeah, it's a catch twenty two, isn't it? You need this much country to actually make a living. That's right. But then this much country costs that much money. And also, Tim, like while John's got to pay out the rest of the family too, you know. He won't be able to buy land to expand either. You understand what I mean? It's a bit of a catch-22. Going back to our on-farm research, we know you've learned a fair bit from the stuff that's been done over the... How many years do you reckon you have local research here? It'll be 30 or 31, early 1990s, yeah. What do you think is the, the number one thing you've learnt from those 31 years? Proper nutrition, but also Cole had a direct drill trial and we had chickpeas and we cultivated that and we didn't cultivate the wheat and the moisture was no different. You know, like the, there was light stubble and we just sowed it straight. I think we might have burned the stubble because we only had a 511 combine which wouldn't take trash and there was no difference in the moisture when we sowed it. Well, I said, well, I said, well, this direct drilling is pretty right. That was in the early 1990s. But there wasn't much machinery that you could use that was direct drilling. You know, that sort of come in probably... Five to ten years later, we started direct drilling here in 2004, so that was probably ten years after that. But it was pretty hard. And we've still got the same machine. It's a Gason, which is really good. It suits our country. And that's probably one thing, and probably nutrition, Tim. But direct drilling, that's where I got direct drilling from. I was keen on it after that. Would you say that's had the biggest impact on agriculture in Australia more broadly? Oh, that's yeah, I think Roundup in direct drilling, Tim, yeah, it has. It's changed this country, especially red country. And this lighter country, like, when I first came home, if you've got 50 points, you'd have to go and work it, you know, and the dust would be blown and, and you've got another 50 points, you'd have to you'd have to do it again, you know. Melons, catheads, keach grass, and all those weeds are gone. And we had problem with perennial um, bindweed too here. And where we farm, it's all gone. It's a really hard weed to kill. But Roundup's just, it just don't take Roundup. So chemistry's made it, had a big impact. Is it just yeah, and, like, and that's another one with skeleton weed too. We had a problem with skeleton weed, always deep country. It's all gone too. And so the ability to get, fallow your country properly over the summer, store that moisture, like you were saying, what would you have to say to anyone who's thinking about getting into pre-emergence, who usually just does an in-crop spray, might do some summer fallows, and hasn't really dove into using pre-emergence to control weeds? If you've got legumes, you've really got to use pre-emergence. That's trefoline, you know, turbine. Simazine, like you've got no choice or you, or you won't be able to control your weeds. If you've got a problem ryegrass, well, there's really no post-sowing spray that you can kill ryegrass with and it's only box of gold or Secura and a few of the new chemicals it can use. So if you've got a ryegrass problem, you've just got to do it. Even though it's a high input cost, it's all about matching the situation to the best. That's right. Yeah, you don't put it in every paddock. You put it on the paddocks that need it. So Tex, we've talked about tropical grasses what else is there that you can tell me about them that you've benefited from? If you've only got loosen or improved pasture country, like that's not like trop- subtropical grasses, there's no feed there. It's a bit of a feast or a famine. If you've got a subtropical grass, there's cover on your country most of the time 
and there's bulk there, like if you let it grow up a bit and you can put licks with it, you know, to break down the grass a bit if it's got a bit of hide in it. And there's always cover on the country and your country's not always bare and it really responds to the smallest of showers. So tropical grasses, it's fantastic. And I know Bob Freeban, he's done trials and I think you might get four kilos to the hectare of native grasses and then you might get 100 off subtropical grasses feed, you know what I mean? Like, And also, Tim, liming is really fantastic with this country to make it productive. You know, like acidic soils, they tie up phosphorus, you know, that's all Australian soils deficient in it and you want to be able to use what you can. Plus it loosen really responds to liming. I was actually going to ask you, I know that the DPI were doing that deep P trial out the back on back Chippendale there. Are you still seeing any differences we did last year, Tim, but I've had a bit of a look this year and I couldn't see any in the wheat. I know I can't see any. I might have a better look because I think those posts are still there, you know, the little nylon posts you've got from the outside. I haven't really walked in there. I might do that, but I just can't see any difference. Yeah, not at the moment. But last year you could. Yeah, it was lupins, wasn't it? It was lupins and there was no pea put on it. Yeah, it stood out like chalk and cheese, really. It like, was, yeah. Because there's some pretty hefty rates trying to get – because – you know, and just for those who are listening, the idea is that we're getting phosphorus down at depth yeah. to kind of rejuvenate what we've taken up and deposited back on the surface or taken out with seed. Do you feel like that's a practical solution, like being able to get down that deep with phosphorus? Yeah, I think so, Tim. Yeah, I think going by the look of that, it was. Yes, yeah. There's even a fair response in 2019 in a dry year. You know, as I said, a bit like Neil Fatel's trial. It was a good trial. And that's more about because there's moisture, the crop can access. That's right, yeah, the, the moisture that's there. Thank you for your time with me, Tex. It's been great. You've got a, a lot of experience that I hope I can keep learning from, but yeah, okay. anything you want to say to the, the listeners before you head oh, off? Just, just never stop learning and always be innovative and just make sure you do your homework before you do it because it can be costly. <laughs> so I left homework at school, but, yeah, it's good advice. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.